All right, Fresh Tracks Weekly, this is episode 60. So this week we're gonna talk about a bill in Iowa that could have a rippling effect of displacing hunters. And also talk about the dangers of going down the road of privatizing hunting. So for me, the weekend was very fun, but very cold. Uh, we did get out and look for elk and we did find some, they just weren't in the right spot. So hopefully next week we have some better luck. We're gonna head out again. We did get a chance to go check out some winter range and see how many deer are around. After last year's winter, it's a little bit concerning and it is still pretty sad to see how down the numbers are, but it was encouraging to see at least a few bucks survived and some a few nice ones at that. Uh, so it's not, it's not all bleak out there. There's some that did make it through. Other than that, Randy is off to the Wild Sheep Foundation Sheep Show, uh, which is a pretty cool event. They usually start out with a number of meetings and seminars with biologists and advocates getting together, discussing the newest science and the status of wild sheep herds across their range. But of course, there's also a big entertainment factor with vendors, raffles, banquets, auctions, all sorts of stuff that they use as a fundraiser for wild sheep. But one event, in my opinion, that is one of the coolest is the Less Than One Club, where they are raffling off three different doll sheep hunts, but you're only eligible to win if you've never harvested a wild sheep ram. I'm ineligible, uh, but it's pretty cool. It's just like an opportunity for the attendees who don't have as deep a pockets uh, to also have a chance to to like, potentially win a sheep tag. But don't get me wrong, the guys who have very deep pockets are also important for uh, giving all that money in support of wild sheep. Anyway, other than that, here are a few news stories that we found relevant this week. In Montana, a judge recently ruled that lawmakers will have the ability to override Governor Gianforte's controversial veto of a bill last legislative session. We covered this last year as it was happening, but here's a quick cliff notes of how it went down. Montanans voted to legalize marijuana with the promise that a significant portion of the tax revenue would go towards Habitat Montana, a fund that helps purchase sweet chunks of land for wildlife habitat. But once everyone realized how much money that was actually going to amount to, they started gunning for it and not wanting it to all go to Habitat Montana. So eventually after a lot of back and forth, much debate, Senate Bill 442 ended up being a compromise of sorts where everyone kind of got a little bit of piece of the pie with Habitat Montana still being included and that bill passed with a significant amount of support. But on the last day of the legislative session, Governor Gianforte vetoed that bill. And normally the legislature could override that veto with a two thirds vote, but because it was the last day, the legislature adjourned before a vote could occur. So this pissed off a ton of people who wanted the lawmakers to be able to vote, to override, and now many months later, it sounds like that vote is actually going to occur via a mail-in veto override poll that will be sent out to legislators across Montana. So it doesn't necessarily mean that SB 442 will become law, but the vote will happen and we'll have to watch and see how it shakes out. The Bureau of Land Management recently released their roadmap for solar energy development on public lands in the West. In this press release, there's a lot of rhetoric about meeting goals of solar energy production and making permitting more efficient. Also, it says that in an analysis from the BLM and Department of Energy, that to meet these goals, they would need approximately 700,000 acres of public land. But in the BLM solar plan, they aim to provide around 22 million acres of land open for solar application to give maximum flexibility to reach clean energy goals. Yeah, 22 million acres. So while many people tout the need for clean energy and the need to cut carbon emissions, conservation organizations have voiced concerns over the rapid implementation of these solar projects. When a large scale solar farm goes in, it is a high fence operation that makes the land virtually unusable for any other purpose. 
There's no wildlife habitat and no public access. It just feels like the rush to meet these green energy goals could lead to some unintended consequences, with our public lands and wildlife paying many of those costs. Many of these projects are going to happen, and to the BLM's credit, they have done extensive work to identify areas to have the least amount of environmental impact, but there will still be significant impact. The release of the solar roadmap opens up the 90-day comment period where you can provide input on the plan by emailing solar at blm.gov. Uh, you can learn more by also going to the link that I'll put in the description, but I'm not going to lie. There's a lot to unpack with a ton of documents, thousands of pages of material, but to boil it down, the federal agencies often like to put things in alternatives. So they have five alternative options plus a no action option. The matrix that I'm putting up on screen now shows what the alternatives are, with alternative one basically opening everything up, with varying levels of that all the way to alternative five, which would prefer solar development to disturbed or degraded areas within 10 miles of transmission lines. So they've broken down areas within each state and they have different options of land that'll be available to solar energy development. So, for example, I went to this document and hit Command F and typed in Montana because that's where I'm most familiar and concerned with. And so now I can see what the proposed lands available for solar application within each alternative for the different areas of the state. And any way you slice it, it's a significant amount of land. Anyway, there are links in the description if you want to learn more and comment on the solar roadmap. In Colorado, the April mountain lion season has been canceled along with a statewide ban on electronic calls for lion hunting. While these changes are relatively minimal in terms of the total lion hunting opportunity or harvest, houndsmen have voiced concern as the April season had been a good time of the year for training dogs. It should be noted that mountain lion populations are healthy and growing in Colorado, with hunting currently being used as a management tool with sustainable harvest quotas in place. The April season accounted for very little of the total harvest, but the seemingly unjustified cancellation of it has caused concern among sportsmen as there has been a push to ban lion hunting outright in the state. Last year, Colorado Governor Jared Polis appointed three members to the State Parks and Wildlife Commission who seemed much less supportive of hunting and the North American model of wildlife management. This, combined with several ballot initiatives that have been proposed attacking mountain lion hunting, Ballot Initiative 91 aims to ban mountain lion and bobcat hunting altogether, while Ballot Initiative 101 would prohibit the use of traps, dogs, bait, or electronic devices to follow mountain lions, along with making it illegal to remove any animal's head, hide, fur, claws, teeth, antlers, horns, internal organs, or feather from the carcass. Basically, it would make it so you could only legally retain meat from hunted animals. So it remains to be seen if either of those initiatives will actually end up on Colorado's ballot in November 2024. But when looking at just the cancellation of that April season, sportsmen are worried that the recent changes from this commission are a step in the direction of siding with anti-hunters rather than following science-based wildlife management that is currently in place. All right, for our deeper dive, we are gonna talk about a new bill in Iowa that aims to divert non-resident deer tags to outfitted sponsored clients. Grandy was alerted to a a bill in Iowa yeah. that could have some pretty interesting consequences. So right. fill yeah. us in. What's going on? Yeah, there's a bill in Iowa that would give 500 of the non-resident tags. There's currently 6,000 deer tags there. 500 of them would go and be reserved for outfitters and their clients. Now, I didn't know about this, but one of the guys out on our Hunt Talk forum, hunttalk.com, which I think is the accumulation of the most engaged, informed hunter conservation thinkers in the, in the planet. 
the hangout on Hunt Talk, and they post this kind of stuff. This is Iowa Senate Bill 255. And the, a lot of people would be thinking, well, why, why does Randy, why does Marcus, why, they live in Montana, why, why would they care? Or maybe even if you're a resident of, of Iowa, why would you care? Exactly. Like, yeah, because on the surface, you might think, well, it's 500 tags, like, as, say I'm an Iowa resident. It's 500 yeah. tags that's already going to non-residents. Who do I care what they go to? Like, yeah. it's, it doesn't affect me in any way. Yeah. That, that's what, that might be what it looks like on the surface. Anyway. Right. But, but we have evidence. Montana used to have guaranteed outfitter pools. New Mexico has outfitter pools. And, yeah, we have a lot more public land than Iowa does. Iowa has very little public land. So I think the application of this this bill would be more dramatic in Iowa because it's so much private land and it doesn't have public land to be the shock absorber for displaced hunters like is in in some of the western states right so if what history shows is when you take a trust asset like wildlife as a public trust asset to be held in trust managed by your commission your elected and appointed officials for all beneficiaries beneficiaries equally you take a portion of that and you hand it off to one group of beneficiaries. The entire economic flow of that now becomes theirs. And what do you suppose they do now that they have no risk in leasing property? Because I've got, I think I've got six points in Iowa and Matthew has 10. Yeah, We could go anytime we want. But once we burn those points, we'd have to build three or four more years worth of points to go again. Yeah. So... If, if you're somebody who's really into whitetail hunting, are you going to go pay a huge amount for a lease in Iowa as a non-resident if you can only hunt it every three or four years? Probably not. But if you can hunt it every year and you and your three golf buddies pool your money and you say, well, for $30,000, I know there's this piece of property down in south central Iowa. I know we could get, we, we could lease that out and we'll just get an outfitter to help us. Right. Yeah. It just seems like it's taking a step in privatizing mm-hmm. wildlife and just it is. benefiting those who have the deepest pockets, Right. which is just, I guess it's disappointing if you follow you know, the North American model right. where we've, you know, identified these principles that have given us what is a great wildlife management system. This yeah. is just straying away from it. This yeah. is, and it's not a huge step, but it is a step in that direction. Yeah. So and, how, how long do you think it'll be before this 500 becomes 1,000? Right. Yeah. And it, becomes 50% of the tags. So if you're a resident of Iowa, and in a lot of places, you get to hunt because, hey, Uncle Joe's got a farm and I can hunt it. Well, someone comes and waves a lot of money in front of Uncle Joe's nose. He's probably going to say, hey, guys, I... I you know, you're just going to have to go hunt somewhere else. Or if you're already having to lease because of the private land situation in Iowa, the price of leasing is going to go way up. Yeah. And if two or three non-residents cough up $10,000 each to go and lease this out, they're not displacing two or three right. resident hunters. They're probably displacing dozens yeah, because I mean, hunters. what, what, and I, again, I, I'm not familiar with the whitetail world that much, but I can imagine that a property that would support 10 hunters, you know, if you have enough money, like, no, I just want to have it to myself just right. as one hunter versus, you know, maybe 10 
10 hunters who used to hunt that. And right. where do those other nine hunters go? Or, you know, 10 right. in that case, because it's a someone new coming in that didn't used to hunt it. Yeah. So it's, it, yeah, it's History it's shows where they go. And this is why it affects you and me in Montana or f- affects somebody in Colorado or, or probably really affects people in surrounding states, Illinois, Missouri, Minnesota, South Dakota, Nebraska. Because now the Iowa hunters are going to be like, I'm getting priced out. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to go hunt wherever. You know, it's cheaper to drive over to Nebraska. Or it's cheaper to drive down to Missouri or whatever. Or it's cheaper to just save my money. I'm not going to be in a lease anymore. I'm just going out west elk hunting. Yeah. Well, and like you said, who knows when 500 could become 1,000 or what, and so forth. So are there some examples where states have maybe not done this exactly but gone down that path? Mm-hmm. of, you know, rewarding just the outfitters. And, and I don't want to, like, beat up on the outfitters too bad, no. but at the same time, it's like that's the narrow pool who is benefiting. Exactly. They're, they're, right. The outfitters and a handful of non-residents are going right. to be the ones who benefit right. from this bill, so, where the vast majority of residents don't see any additional gains from it, right. only potential loss. Yep. And then also non-residents who apply – and the general pool without an outfitter also are going to have lower odds. Of lower time. odds, right. And you're not picking on outfitters. When, right. when the outf- we, You and I have a lot of friends who are outfitters. Yeah. We, we, we know that there's a lot of great guys there. But when you are an industry and you put your hand in the pot and say, we want to take some of this public trust asset and pull it over to our exclusive favor, and we, we aren't telling you this, but we will use the economic revenue stream here to the detriment of the other beneficiaries – you got to just say what it is. It's an industry effort yeah. to, to muck it up. There's no additional benefit to the wildlife, and there's Zero. no adi- additional benefit to the residents of Iowa. Zero. So no. there a, a few residents of Iowa who are, right. who are, are outfitters, outfitters. But other than that, yeah. like, a, as far as, like, the, like you said, like the full beneficiary. Right. So the, the reason I, I, I make a case about this and thought it was worth talking about is not just because of Iowa. Because we are seeing this happen throughout the country. Our elected and appointed trustees of this wildlife trust mm-hmm. that in 1842, the U.S. Supreme Court said wildlife is held in trust for the citizens of that state as the beneficiaries. We are seeing attempt after attempt after attempt to have our trustees just be ignorant or worse yet than being ignorant is being complicit in these efforts to take our public trust asset of wildlife and hand it off to an exclusive group who then turn around and use that against us. Yeah. That pisses me off. <laughs> so that's, that's why I bring it up in Iowa because with all of the states in in 2025, all the states will, because a lot of states have bicameral legislatures. In 2025, every state will be in session, I believe. 2024, most of them are, but Montana is and a couple others aren't. You're going to see efforts in your state, just like what's in the Iowa Senate right now with Senate Bill 255, to try and come and take some of your wildlife asset and bring it to their little corner where they get it, and they're going to use that for their own benefit, which is often to the detriment of me and you and all the other beneficiaries. Yeah. No, I think it's it's really interesting because at, at, 
on initial glance, like I didn't see, you know, like what you said, the ripple effect. Mm-hmm. And I can see people just like, oh, you're just, you know, you're worried about not being able to draw non-resident Iowa take. Like, no, it's a lot bigger than that. Right. You, or, do you ever plan to plan to apply in Iowa? No. No. I'd, I mean, once there's good whitetail hunting in Montana. So right. I don't need it. I mean, or, I mean, it's not, it's probably not as good as Iowa, but it's just not high enough on my priority list to, yeah. to do it. But Matthew and I have had the amount of points we've had for 10 years, probably, and we've never burned them. So I don't know if we plan on going there, but I want the Iowa residents to realize that they're about ready to get fried here. Yeah. And I want other people in other states to realize that this is not just an Iowa issue. It's like throwing a huge boulder in a little pond the ripple effects go across the landscape it displaces hunters it creates an an increase in in i guess lease costs if in states where you have to lease to if you're going to get to hunt and a lot when people get priced out they either come out west or they go to the neighboring state that doesn't have and then that neighboring state feels all this pressure and they're going to have to do something it's yeah well, and we've had issues in Montana with, I mean, it's it's similar but different because it, it's just a different state, different right. wildlife, different land ownership patterns. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, do you have examples of some, I we mentioned New Mexico. New Mexico, right. So they, they have a significant portion of non-resident land, or uh, not landowner, but uh, outfitter, outfitter sponsored tags. tags. Right. 10% of their tags in the entire draw pool, go to someone who uses the services of an outfitter. Yeah. So you think about that, only 6% go to non-residents. Well, do you think that 10% is not an economic model that allows them to go and lease up some of the best of the best? Yeah. And that's why non-residents or, or why residents of New Mexico are complaining. The total number of tags, if you count landowner tags, the outfitter sponsor tag, everything, that go to residents is only a little over 50% by the time you get done with all their things. So why does New Mexico feel that they got to take 10% of a public trust asset, hand it off to this small group of people that then use the revenue stream generated from that public asset, usually to the detriment of the, of the state resident hunters who are the true beneficiaries of the trust? Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a really interesting way to look at it, and I feel like you've changed my perspective on on that. Whenever there's a wildlife related bill of like really looking at like who benefits from this, and is it benefiting who it's supposed to? Right. And a lot of times it's not. No. And so I think that's just like I just hadn't thought of looking at it in that way before, and I don't know if it's the accountant background <laughs> in you, and also just knowing about you know that is a big part of the North American model right. of like benefiting the public trust. Yeah. I've, I've and spent, so, uh, for, I've spent 30 years as a trust accountant. Yeah. yeah. I'm still the trustee of a lot of trust. So when we want to start talking about true public trust roles and duties and all this, I'll sit here face to face, toe to toe with anybody who wants to talk about that stuff. <laughs> and they don't want to talk about it on these terms because they know damn well it's true. Yeah. And they know damn well, once they get the revenue stream coming their way, they're going to use it to try to get 1,000 tags. And pretty soon it will be 50% because every time it's more revenue. Yeah. And they get, in effect, they're being backed by all of that revenue that could come from non-residents. 
right? Iowa's got a great reputation for whitetail hunting. And the wealthiest of the wealthy want to go there and whitetail hunt. Yeah. So this isn't like Randy and Marcus who, uh, you know, are poor boy and want to go to that. That's not who's going to mess it up for these Iowa guys. It's going to be the wealthiest of the wealthy who want to go and have exclusive places and shoot seven year old bucks. Yeah. And they're going to do in order to get seven year old bucks, they're going to have to do what you said. They're going to have to displace a whole lot of people. Right. And close off all the hunting for that, you know, small handful of bucks that make it to the level that they want. Yeah. So this bill, Senate Bill 255, mm-hmm. so far it's just in, is it in committee still? It said some subcommittee recommends passage. Yeah. So it hasn't gone very far currently. No. So, in, and if I'm not mistaken, isn't this some of the best time to get it killed? Like yes. early, right? Yes. You if, wanna... if you are a resident of Iowa, get this thing killed now. Yeah. Okay. It, it, it's way easier to kill it in committee because once it gets out on a full vote uh the, you got a lot of your legislators who they don't even know the issue but they know somebody who does and they're like how should i vote on this and they're like oh yeah vote for it so they end up voting for it not even knowing what the consequences are right so, that is one thing also that i've learned in the last few years is just because somebody is on a natural resources committee or whatever it doesn't mean they actually have that much knowledge <laughs> about what that what the consequences of that bill truly are like, or even like in ballpark, like sometimes they have absolutely no idea. Right. And so that, that was kind of eye opening to me as well as people voting on things that have no clue at all. So they're just listening to whoever was in their ear, you know, most recently, maybe just like, Oh yeah, somebody said that. Or one of their, one of the members of whatever party they're associated with. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I know this is a pretty big stink about a bill in Iowa and, you know, we live in Montana and a lot of our audiences spread across the country. Well, be looking for this stuff. It's going to be showing up in your legislature. Mm -hmm. And if you think that displacing a bunch of Iowa residents doesn't impact you in Minnesota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Illinois, you know, wherever, Missouri, or even out West, I'm here to tell you it does. Yeah. So, and besides that, I just want to see the Iowa residents have a place to hunt. Yeah. And not have to break out their checkbook any more than they already do. So, well, right. yeah. No, I'll, this go is take, I'll go take my blood pressure pill. <laughs> Good thing I didn't have coffee this morning before this, Marcus. This shit pisses me off so bad. <laughs> but, oh well. Well, thanks for bringing it to everyone's attention. And yeah, yeah. have to watch it and. Hopefully it gets killed early on. Yeah, hope so. Thanks to the guys out on Hunt Talk who brought it to my attention. Yep. All right. All right, thank you. Yep.